0: These organizations were getting phishing emails that were incredibly personalized, that understood the directionality of relationships between people. This person is likely to message this person and about this topic. And that to us suggested that in some cases, uh, these attackers probably had like briefing documents that sort of said, here's who you should target. Perhaps uh, here are some things that you should do to target them, this kind of stuff might work.
1: Episode 320 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe & Johnson. Thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. Uh, and the views expressed here do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, uh, our, the poor families that have to listen to us during dot lockdown, or the pets who will occasionally offer their own views during the course of the episode. Uh, today, I'm going to be interviewing Chris Bing and John Scott Railton. Uh, Chris is a cybersecurity reporter with uh, Reuters. We've had him on before. I think you were uh, with CyberScoop at the time, right, Chris? Yeah, I think I've been on since uh, since I was with Reuters. But yeah, great to be back. Okay. And John Scott Railton, senior researcher at Citizen Lab, PhD candidate at UCLA and author of uh, co-author of a report that we'll be talking about. Uh, uh, John, go Bruins. Good to see you. How are you doing? Very good. Oh, and for the roundup of news today, we're going to have David Chris, co-founder of Culper Partners, law professor uh, and formerly with the Justice Department uh, with Intellectual Ventures and with Time Warner. Uh, uh, David, where are you a law professor?
2: Um, I teach currently at the University of Washington out here in the Seattle area where I live. Uh, and when I lived in D.C. back in the day, I taught at Georgetown. But just as an adjunct professor, I'm not a, a full blown professor by any means.
1: No, because you're too busy writing to, uh, uh, to be a law professor just teaching. Uh, uh, you, you, you produce the definitive work on uh, uh, FISA and intelligence surveillance law. Uh, and um, uh, we're all grateful to you for doing that in your spare time. OK, and Nate Jones, uh, co-founder of Culper Partners, formerly with the Justice Department and the National Security Council. Uh, uh, Nate, uh, you're holed up in Oregon, right? That's right. Okay. Nice, uh, cloudy, rainy day today. Of course it is. Not <laughs> surprisingly. It's it's not June, so it must be cloudy and rainy. <laughs> All right. And Nick Weaver, Senior Researcher and Lecturer in Computer Science at UC Berkeley. Nick, good to have you. Excellent. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host and chief provocateur of today's program. Let's get right to it. Uh, uh, Nick, um, Facebook is... Um, kind of enmeshed in a story that I, my comment on it was, how long before this shows up in NSO's briefs? Because it looks as though Facebook is doing something not completely different from what NSO does for a living?
3: Well, sort of. So what happened is Facebook was dealing with a very determined child predator. Um, and they were working with the FBI. This child predator was very cautious. He was using um, Tails, which is a Linux distribution that boots from USB, so it doesn't leave any forensics records, and then routes all the traffic through Tor. It is basically um, the ultimately paranoid operating system.
1: Um, so he was very he was very cautious about. How he covered his tracks, but in what he did, he was really kind of completely out of control.
3: Yes, nauseating, basically blackmailing young girls into producing sexually explicit material for his gratification. Um, And Facebook was working with the FBI, and basically, somewhere along the line, they basically concluded that they had no choice but to step up the game. And so what they did is they contracted with a third party vendor to create a FBI style uh, exploit malcode that would identify his computer. So if you infect his computer it just basically says I am here. And in particular what they targeted was the video player on Tails. And interestingly enough I don't think it was actually a zero day. Rather what it was was a vulnerability that was going to be patched in the next release. So one of the components was updated, the video player. And when Tails does a new release, they update all the pieces. And so by looking at the video player having a new update that wasn't yet incorporated in Tails, finding a vulnerability for that spending north of $100,000 on the third-party contractor to provide to the FBI. This is how annoyed Facebook was with this truly despicable um, predator, is they spent over $100,000 of their own money to develop an exploit to hand to the FBI so that the FBI, with a warrant, could De-anonymize this guy.
1: Well, I've, I often say that you know, uh, no matter how much you believe in privacy, if you work in this field, sooner or later you're going to find somebody so vile that you don't think they deserve privacy. Uh, which is, of course, the the position of the Fourth Amendment of the United States. It's only the nutcases in uh, Silicon Valley who are sheltered from this stuff that uh, that don't see it that way. But I'm struck by how. I I don't know whether it was how lucky or how carefully this worked out for Facebook. Um, They are able to say, I believe this is a one time only one defendant only tool. we gave it to the FBI and they used it as far as we know, once to get this guy and now they can't use it again because tails has been uh, updated. It makes me wonder how much of the, uh, Research was focused on finding a bug like that or whether they reported it so make sure it got updated after they had found it. I, it this is really suspiciously well-coordinated.
3: Actually, I think it's that it was suspiciously easy. So what you do ah, yeah. if you want to attack Tails video player is you find out the video player that's installed. Look for bug fixes that have been pushed into the main branch, but not yet picked up by Tails, because Tails does a normal regular release schedule. Now, a lot of those bugs might turn out to be exploitable memory vulnerabilities. So now you go and develop the exploit that way. And for free, you get the property of it gets patched in the lit next version, so it's a one-time use weapon. So we don't
1: actually know who writes tails, do we?
3: Uh, yes, it's a uh, it's a quasi-public um, distribution, um, and it's really mostly based around taking components and putting them together. So um, okay, they rely very heavily on Tor, for example. Um, And it's basically a Linux distribution on a USB drive that's designed to boot from USB, which is standard ability. And the only real special sauce is route all network traffic through Tor, which is the kind of thing that Tor is designed to do.
1: Got it. So I noticed that uh, it, this is partly a response to the um, movement to uh, adopt the Earn it Act, but uh, a number of tech companies have uh, pledged to do more about child abuse. Uh, is this connected to this?
3: Uh, I think it's more a illustration of the same phenomenon, that the trust and safety team really is always intention on this particular issue because they have to deal with this truly vile stuff. And so Facebook has long been a very good citizen. Um, the biggest issue is in some ways there needs to be, uh, a bit more government support. So, the big problem is is if you have an image, how do you know if it's a known child abuse image? Even there is actually no central database that you can say, "Here's a cryptographic hash. Um, tell me if this is known bad already."
1: Um, is that right? Because I thought there were there were libraries that had been released uh, of, of pretty old. They
3: stuff. all, ha- yeah, but they all actually have um, a tend to have uh, custom data sets. So Facebook's data set for what they know as bad images is not Nick mix. It's one that Facebook has largely had to create on their own.
1: Um, And this is actually... They report like 90% 90 of the uh, uh, child abuse that's reported. So uh, yeah, yeah. I guess it isn't surprising they have their own stuff.
3: Yeah. And they're very aggressive at this, that Facebook really goes out of their way. And um, I think going forward, there does need to be a more explicit public-private partnership on this. But this is a strong example of the publicity about this is targeted around the EARN IT Act. But the behavior has been long time coming, as we can see with this 2017 case.
1: Yeah. Uh, Although I have to say there was a sort of uh, uh, Dr. Evil air when they said, we're going to spend millions of dollars. I mean, uh, these guys can afford millions of dollars pretty easily. All right. David. Zoom Zoom keeps uh, uh, trying to do the right thing. And uh, well, uh, in this case, it's not clear how hard they tried to do the right thing. Uh, uh, but uh, they're not in trouble now for not having yet implemented uh, end-to-end encryption. They're in trouble for having uh, listened when China complained about uh, some Tiananmen Square commemorative,
2: commemorative uh, uh, Zoom sessions. Uh, how did they handle it? Yeah. Yeah, well, this is the um, the old tension and, and conflict between the democratic value of freedom of speech and the market value of operating in countries that don't respect the freedom of speech. So as you say, there were four Zoom commemorative meetings uh, to be hosted. And according to the the company itself, which put out a blog on this, the People's Republic government uh, complained about that. And in three out of the four cases, Zoom suspended the host account based on an assessment that there would be a significant number of participants in the Zoom meeting that were uh, living or based in mainland China. Um, Zoom apologized for that and put out this blog saying they've got to do better. Um, the chief thing they're saying they're going to do better is develop more sophisticated geoblocking techniques so that they can uh, block users who are in china while permitting meetings to occur for users who are outside china say in europe or the united states or elsewhere Um, and that seems to be the the preferred solution it's similar i think to solutions that have been adopted for blocking access to certain streaming content based on uh, geography for example Um, and uh, almost inevitably they have also a letter from a bipartisan group of united states senators uh, demanding a lot of answers to a lot of questions, so we'll see how this plays out going forward. But but right now, what they seem to be doing, and they promise more information on June 30th, uh, is working towards um, geographically based participant level blocking techniques that will, I guess, satisfy the People's Republic government and uh, perhaps not offend Western governments
1: yeah i it, it, this it's the only solution that's actually com- likely to be workable uh it does raise for me the fact that uh, uh from time to time uh, i have said why is it that uh, uh we can't uh and guarantee freedom of speech for americans take action that uh, um is limited to the united states and the response from companies in Silicon Valley is, oh, no, that would wreck the global nature of the internet, the interoperable global nature, which is, you know, it's, it's in ruins already. I, it seems to me we ought to ask some questions about whether we can uh, protect our free speech values by uh, refusing to allow uh, foreign governments to uh, uh, tell us what can be said inside the United States.
2: Well, it is a it is a messy intersection there, where um, market incentives and uh, free speech and other values and technology come together. And uh, if you don't like it now, you know, wait a week and you won't like it, but in a different way at that time because it's very yes.
1: uh, Well, I think that's right because uh, um, by then we'll we'll have a. Draft bill from Senator Hawley uh, implementing the uh, Trump executive order on content moderation. Is that right, Nate?
4: That's right. I I call this uh, portion of the program More Talk, Still Not a Lot of Action. Um, There are two things that happened uh, or are currently happening. One is Hawley and, and a handful of other senators sent a letter to the FCC. Um, asking them to define the criteria under which companies are MU and under section 230. This is a follow on to Trump's executive order in which he um, directed the Commerce Department to do the exact same thing, essentially. Um, we'll see where that goes. But the big problem for the FCC is they're limited by the statute itself. And. You've come up with, uh, I think in our last conversation about this, some creative theories about how you could go after some of these companies despite the broad immunity of 230. But, um, you know, I think those ways are still pretty limited and uh, including to pretty limited factual circumstances. And so um, the real action here and the real threat to the industry is around legislation. And that's right. Holly's Legislation that he's drafting would would reportedly remove the liability protections in 230 for both user-generated content and moderation decisions of these companies if they're found to have enforced their terms of service unevenly. Um, and a political report this morning suggests that the bill would also make those liability protections in 230 contingent on not selling targeted advertising based on user activity um, a couple things here stick out to me. One is uh, uh, that at a high level, there's a there seems to be a growing consensus that 230 should be revisited in some way. The the thing that we're lacking at this point is any consensus around what it should be changed to accomplish. And so let me let me ask you let me ask you this. Far uh... apart. Nate, we
1: we 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 disagree on almost every aspect of this. Uh, (laughs) Let me let me let me see if I can find common ground. Do you think it would make sense to say that uh, um, companies are required uh, where they have identified uh, suspected foreign government communications uh, uh, aimed at the American public to either. take them down or uh, put them in a special category so that people are warned before they go there and to cooperate with U.S. counterintelligence authorities in trying to figure out uh, who's doing it and whether they should be prosecuted under U.S.
4: law. Well, I, I think certainly the first portion of that has a lot of merit. The the part about either taking it down or labeling it as such, so that people can make informed decisions about about the content itself. The cooperation with intelligence agencies, um, you know, has has a lot of downstream effects potentially, and there are other legal changes that might actually be required in some cases, and so. Um, that's a, a complicated issue that, um, maybe we put a pin in and have to think a little bit more about, but I do think that, um, the, the takedown or labeling of, of, you know, particular speech directed at the American public by foreign governments, um, is something that I think a lot of these, um, companies have been trying to, to do more on, um, you know, I think well, the, the the challenge will be in defining, you know, sort of what exactly those terms mean right you yeah know, but, uh, look it's 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 home. a
1: start uh, you know yeah. the lion the lion is lying down with the lamb and uh, you know <laughs> let's let's
4: hope uh, the lion is not hungry um, it, all right I mean, I, think I the, can I can I say one yeah. more quick thing Stuart I think you know the the thing that you know I I, I guess speaking to Senator Hawley um, that I would like to communicate here is be careful what you wish for you know, forcing these companies to do more even-handed and fair enforcement of their terms of service will not necessarily benefit conservative voices on these platforms. And similarly, I think this this um, idea of stripping liability protections from companies that target advertisements based on user activity is is a way to to get at certain companies and hit their bottom line for sure. Um, but when you're a political party that, um, tries to fire up your base through a combination of, of, um, you know, fear and outrage that, um, Hey, 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 uh, criticize the Republicans too, please.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Now we found the
4: common ground between you guys. (laughs) It's it's designed to drive clicks and you take that motive out of this. And I think there are a lot of people that think that will not benefit conservatives very much either. And so, um, you know, some of these solutions to me uh, seem like uh, if they're ever implemented, they may actually do more harm to conservative voices than good so
1: we will we will see i think uh this you're, for sh- for sure this is a this is a um project that's going to take a decade as we work out the power relationship here and figure out what uh, can be done uh, i sort of like the idea of saying no one no one who serves uh, uh, content in the united states can accept any order from or guidance from a foreign government that would be a violation of the First Amendment if they got it from the U.S. government. I cannot believe there is a rule that uh, the Russians can censor what we see, but uh, the uh, U.S. government can't. Uh, So trying to get at that would be worthwhile. Meanwhile, Europe. Uh, speaking of people who want to censor what Americans uh, uh, see and do, uh, Europe has decided to declare cloud independence, and they've gotten they're getting a lot of help from Microsoft. So I, I I'm I'm puzzled by how it is that uh, uh, France and Germany think that uh, um, having you know, the full-throated support of Microsoft is
2: going to produce cloud independence. But David, maybe you can explain it. Um, I'm not sure I can. Um, I I actually had not heard of this Gaia X project um, until I prepared for it in advance of this podcast. Um, And for those out there who have no idea what it is, it appears to be a set of technical and policy requirements and standards for cloud services in Europe that are designed to promote data sovereignty and data autonomy for Europe as well as some other values like data availability and innovation, um, mainly against the perceived predations of the United States and the People's Republic of China. So this is a cloud set of standards for Europe. In keeping with European values, the fact that it may be powered by Microsoft uh, is decidedly in the background uh, in terms of how the um, project is being described. And the focus, frankly, so far, uh, apart from the technical side of things and on the values front, is really, I think, centered on requiring notice to the European customer um, of, of cloud services in Europe if a U.S. Cloud Act request were to come in following the completion of a bilateral agreement between the United States and any government other than the United Kingdom. Uh, that should only take two to five years uh, for that to occur. So um, that's the way it's being pitched. Um, the actual reality of the thing, I, I'm less clear in my own mind um, how it will actually play out, but it, it is being portrayed right now and understood, I think, by a lot of people through the traditional lens of, you know, sort of trying to protect European privacy, chiefly against American surveillance authorities. Uh, and right. it, it, it plays out more or less so far, at least pretty predictably uh, along that script.
1: So I'm interested in, you don't have to comment on this, but I, I, I'm interested in uh, another story that we're also covering today, kind of briefly, uh, about Microsoft having announced that it's going to get out of the face recognition business until Congress regulates face recognition. And, and I, I think when you put these two things together, their embrace of all the principles and regulatory claptrap from uh, Europe, uh, plus the notion that uh, what they want is more regulation and face recognition, I think Microsoft has now gone on full AT&T. They have said basically, hey, we have more and better lobbyists than anybody. We should be getting the government to take a much bigger role in our industry. We can afford any regulation that comes down the pike. And if we can't afford it, we can stop it. So let's go all in on regulating tech because it's going to be good for companies like us and Facebook and Google. So that's I, I I wonder if if that's not the more interesting news value in this story. All right, I uh, uh, Nate, um, there's a there was a great story came out of risky biz uh, the risky biz newsletter, which if you don't subscribe to, you should uh, uh, about why it is that uh, uh, foreign governments might break in and steal information from uh, vaccine and other uh, medical researchers in a time of coronavirus.
4: Uh, uh, I thought that was fascinating. Yeah, absolutely. I do not subscribe, or at least I didn't until recently. And so I'm very glad and thankful to you uh, for flagging this article for us. Um, you know, I think it is, uh, you know, more than a cyber story. It, it's an important thing to understand uh, because it's a trend line that I think is is very disturbing for where things should could go um, once there is a vaccine and what that could mean. Cyber is really just the mechanism by which they're doing this. So from a cyber perspective, you know, the lesson to take away from this is they're all coming for you batten down the hatches and shore up your defenses or you're going to lose what you have. Um, you know, I think the the reasons why that's happening are are important to understand, as I said, for understanding where this is likely to go. You have, um, you know, a lot of reasons why these these governments want to be first in this race for a vaccine. Um it can benefit them from a public health and safety standpoint. It, it benefits them from an economic standpoint, not just directly in terms of being the first to a vaccine and being able to sell it or, or corner the market on supply chain and, and gain advantage there, but also in terms of vaccinating your population potentially and opening up other you know, your economy more broadly. Um, and then reputationally as a country, you know, to be the first to win this race um, carries some benefit. Um, you know, I think, I think you have these other factors that are exacerbating some of this bad behavior, so to speak. Um, and many of those focus, in my opinion, on accessibility concerns. There are known supply chain pressures. So being the first out of the gate provides tremendous advantage. There are questions of affordability and, you know, earlier reports of things like US drug manufacturers um, who aren't even the ones at the center of developing these in some cases are insisting on exclusive worldwide patents um, and threatening affordability in some people's eyes um, are driving some of these competitive actions. And then there's an us versus them mentality that pervades certain countries' approach to foreign policy, and there's a fear that that's going to, um, you know, um, spill over into their handling of a vaccine if they're the first ones to it. And first and foremost among those are the U.S. and China. In April, uh, the U.S. refused to join a WHO commitment to commit uh, to distributing vaccines in an equitable way. They didn't attend an EU-led effort to get countries to pledge funding for research, and um, you know they've they've been loath to publicly and unequivocally denounce reports that they're taking concrete steps to position themselves to take an America-first approach to the vaccine, where the U.S. benefits and everybody else pays through the nose. And those things can significantly exacerbate and encourage this bad behavior. And like I said, China's doing many of these same things. And when those two countries, I think of the six um, potential vaccines that are currently being uh, tested, they are, I think those two countries account for either four or five of them. And when the rest of the world's looking at them, wondering if they'll ever get access to this stuff or they'll be able to afford it, um, it's going to encourage this kind of behavior and once there is a vaccine if we can if we continue this competitive trend in infighting, it could be pretty ugly if you're not on the winning side.
1: Well, look uh, part of this is if you, um, expect to get the vaccine. You need to pay for the research. That's not an unreasonable requirement, uh, and the U.S. has paid for a lot of research uh, uh, and wants to make sure that uh, it is not in a political position of saying, "No, your grandma needs to die so that we can send this to somebody in South Africa." Uh, you know that, that 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 is ugly politics too, uh, and uh, I kind of understand it, but I don't think that has has much to do with. Uh, espionage the espionage is to is I'm, I'm pretty confident to monopolize the supply chain so that they can uh, uh, they can say well you may have the patent but we have all the precursors uh, and and so um
4: it, it only makes sense to do that i actually it but occurred I, to me i do think some of that comes yep. back to this competitiveness right Stuart there's it's it's about you know monopolizing the supply chain so you have leverage to get the vaccine and, and absolutely about- absolutely Absolutely, but yeah, you know, influence. look, I, we we don't stop we don't stop
1: ugly competition by saying we're not going to compete. If uh, if the Chinese are doing all that, uh, uh, then the question is, do we uh, compete or do we lose? Uh, that's a that's a that's a harder choice. Uh, um,
4: but I do think that, that or you team up doing, with others and force them to to be more cooperative, and it's not a matter. Oh of, yeah, because uh, because the rules based it's the, a matter of healthy versus unhealthy the, competition, right?
1: If, I and you know there was a there was a time there was twenty years when the U.S. was counting on a rules-based international order to. Uh, um put China into a framework that uh, allowed the U.S. not to uh, uh, to do extraordinary things uh, to compete with China. But I, I don't think anybody believes that a rules-based trading system is going to uh, work with China. They they recognize they're a big player and they can break the rules if they want to. Uh, and so we would be crazy to rely just on rules to uh, constrain Chinese behavior in in, in contexts where it really matters to both countries.
4: I think. I think the theme that's developing is: be careful what you wish for. Throwing that rules-based order out the window may not, um, you know produce benefits for us. Oh, look,
1: 15 years from now, we may say, yeah, I wish we had a rules-based uh, a system, but we, we always believed that. Uh, and what we don't believe now anymore is that it will really constrain China in 15 years. Nick, you were, you were going to say something.
3: Uh, you do have to understand that China really does want to understand the source code behind Bill Gates's mind control chips so that's perfectly understandable <laughs>
1: yeah I, I I did it did occur to me that if you do cyber espionage well enough, you'll know before the people doing the tests, whether the vaccine is going to be a success, because the people doing the tests are deliberately blinded from the results for uh, uh, a substantial period. But if you can get access to the results that are coming as they come in, and before they're uh, unblinded, uh, you'll know uh, where the vaccine is going. Nick, Nick, how significant is it that uh, uh, the UK chip design firm ARM is fighting with a Chinese JV partner, 5149 to the Chinese, over control of the joint venture? Is that a big deal or does that just sound like an ordinary business dispute?
3: It sounds very interesting. And I think there may be something going on behind the scenes that publicly. It's just about supposed conflict of interest on the part of the joint venture CEO. But if that was the case, you would imagine that the uh, Chinese ownership half would be equally upset. So I'm wondering if there's something else. But we don't know. We just have these rough tea leaves about there being a fight.
1: And And, and, and we know that... That ARM is, you know, uh, it is the most promising chip design that the Chinese have some say in. Uh, it, uh, it, it's not Intel, and uh, it's more open to in, than Intel. And I think if they had to build a uh, an infrastructure around a uh, commodity chip, ARM would be uh, high on the list.
3: It's the number one, actually, that if you're building anything that isn't a normal desktop, laptop computer, you are probably using ARM because it has the most robust software infrastructure out there.
1: Okay. Here's a story I I, I inserted because it got a lot of votes uh, on LinkedIn. Universal Plug and Pwn. turns out that uh, uh, millions of routers and other devices can be commandeered into a DDoS army. Uh, How serious is that uh, exploit?
3: It's moderate. So what it is, is a reflector attack that you can contact a UPnP device and tell it you have to go and fetch this URL to update your status. And so this is describing a reflected DDoS attack. So you trigger some other machine As part of the DOS, it's significant, but it's not massive. There's so many DDoS reflectors and the like out there. The bigger concern is just that this is not a protocol that should be exposed to the internet, period. And I would hope that ISPs start to consider that they should just block all incoming UPnP requests from outside the
4: network.
1: Yeah, you would think so, right? It's kind of hard to think of what, uh, unless you're running your uh, uh, network over uh, your ISP so that you can do this, uh, uh, you shouldn't be doing uh, UPnP over over the internet. And if you're doing UPnP over the internet because you find it more convenient, you're going to get pwned. Okay, uh let me just do quick updates on past stories and then we will close down. Uh, uh, Israel uh which had one of the more controversial coronavirus surveillance systems for contact tracing using their uh uh um, counterterrorism monitoring system ha- has shut it down. It looks as though the uh, uh intelligence agencies never really liked using it. And they said, can we stop now? And uh, the Knesset said, yeah, you ought to stop now. And um, the government said, all right, we're going to write legislation and keep it right on the shelf here, a hair trigger to allow it again. But since uh, the peak has passed here, uh, we'll, we'll let you off the hook uh you will remember my remarks about the uh 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 Brewster kale the uh, internet hippie uh, uh who wanted to give away all these copyrighted books for long term loans uh, because coronavirus uh, he got sued. And he has stopped his long-term loan program. Uh, It's not clear that the lawsuit is going to stop. So uh, it may yet turn out not to be Woodstock for internet hippies, but Altamont. And that's a Uh, a reference that very few people are going to get. Except that there's Wikipedia, so everybody can find out. Okay, go for it. Wikipedia. Uh, Get out the pool cues and start beating poor Brewster Kale. Uh, All right. Uh, uh, (laughs) The president... Uh, the uh, chairman uh, at Har- at Harvard of one of their technological departments, uh, uh, it's Charles Lieber. He was arrested. We covered the arrest, now we're covering the indictment. He's been di- indicted on false statement charges. Um, I Raise well, eye-opening amounts of money were handed to him under the uh, Thousand Talents program, and he reported little or none of it. Uh, so uh, next, we'll get to report on the fact that he's gone to trial, uh, and uh, the story that I mentioned earlier. Uh, everybody except Clearview seems to be getting out of the face recognition program or uh, market, uh, leaving it. Open to Clearview, at least in the US. There are other uh, suppliers from outside the US, Uh, Microsoft got out and said, but we'll come back in if you'll uh, turn it into a regulatory pro- a problem for Clairview AI. IBM said, well, we're not selling anything anyway, so we're going to get out. And Amazon said, uh, um, uh, we're going to declare a moratorium for a year on sales to the cops. Uh, um, a- and my guess is they'll be improving their uh, performance over the next year. Um, That's it for our news roundup. Uh, Let me turn to the interview with Chris Bing and John Scott Railton, whom we've already introduced. So both Crisping and John uh, Scott Railton uh, have moved forward uh, in the last week a really interesting story. Uh, uh, and it's uh, essentially the story of a uh, an Indian individual and firm that appears to be a very prolific hacker for hire. So I'm going to start with John Scott Railton, uh, who helped break this story uh, with several other uh, collaborators at Citizen Lab. And uh, John, I just want to, can you tell us how you came to this story? Yeah, well, like
0: basically everything else that comes to us at Citizen Lab, it began with a phishing email sent to somebody. In this case, it was sent to a journalist who uh, sent a message to me and my colleague, Adam Holkoop, and said, you know, I got this really weird message. Can you guys take a look? So we did. What we determined was it was a phishing message, but what really caught our attention and what Adam sort of got to work on was that the attackers were using a custom URL shortener to disguise their links. The thing is, the shortener that they were using was deterministic and sequential, which meant you could enumerate in theory and unshorten all the links that they had sent with it. Because of the way that their phishing was set up, each of those links had the email address of the intended target. Well, this
1: so is began. sweet I, I, if i could interrupt you the gru made the same mistake didn't they
0: the G, you know what it is it is just one of those continuing easter eggs baked into many fishing kits and um for it we're eternally grateful
1: yes <laughs> okay, so you were you were you were sequentially enumerating all of their so, targets and finding the email addresses of the people that they thought were good candidates for uh, uh, cyber attack. We, uh, that's yeah. pretty. How many? How many did you find?
0: We enumerated so many targets. We found thousands of targets and tens of thousands of phishing attempts. And we sat for years with this data, trying to figure out what we were looking at. And it became clear that the pattern. Who was targeted when indicated not a state group, although they were super prolific, but a hack for higher operation. And there were targets everywhere, like pick a country, we found a target, pick an industry vertical, there were targets. And so a good part of our investigation went from the initial technical part of like, let's kind of climb on top of these guys infrastructure and watch them from behind to let's figure out what connects these people. Let's go talk to many of them. And let's try to find cases where there are cohorts of people who are targeted together for the same reason.
1: And and those probably would have been, you know, a pretty close together on the uh, a sequential uh, um, uh, URL shortener. So I you can probably you. make some guesses. Ah, that's yeah, sweet. I
0: see you read the stuff on GRU. Well, it's not, it's not <laughs> false. And the same thing was true here. And what we really saw was tasking, you know, in the same way that an Intel operator would have tasking. And so there would be just like a batch would sail out. What made it interesting is that some of the targeting happened once, twice, maybe five times maximum against some target. But in other cases, there were targets who got hundreds of messages over years. And we began to get this picture of like maybe different analysts on their side and different targets with different kinds of payment behind them. So, you know, there were some customers of this hack for higher operation that were probably getting like the gold package, Years and years of highly personalized targeting, and then others who probably you know waltzed in the door with a single payment and a request for like a single account.
1: Ah, uh, okay. So the gold, the gold standard gets you the sister and wife and daughter of the target <laughs> minor as children. That well was the target, yes. <laughs> but it,
0: it also gets you like a level of sophistication in the deception. So everybody sort of has this thing like phishing is not that technologically sophisticated for the most part. True here too, right? Sure, they can take into account two-factor authentication, but at the end of the day, this is really a deception operation. What was interesting, though, is that in the cases where we engaged with targeted organizations and got the phishing emails, we found that there was incredible sophistication and organizational knowledge. So one cluster of targets, for example, um, was a group of nonprofits working on an environmental advocacy campaign called Exxon New, which provided evidence that for decades, there was research inside Exxon that was taking into account climate change. So these organizations were getting phishing emails that were incredibly personalized, that understood the directionality of relationships between people. This person is likely to message this person and about this topic. And that to us suggested that in some cases, uh, these attackers probably had like briefing documents that sort of said, here's who you should target. Perhaps uh, here are some things that you should do to target them. This kind of stuff might
1: work. I like this because it, it, it tells us that uh, uh, there's if you're going to do a, a hack for hire operation, uh, it's not just some guy in India who is deniable and unextraditable, but uh, the people who want the hack done have to get their hands dirty. They have to say, oh, I know this guy. I know his uh, who his boss is, and he's, he's bound to uh, answer his boss. Uh, he loves stuff about this topic or <laughs> that topic, uh, and so uh, uh, send him this, um, and that raises the question whether people a little closer to the targets, whether it's PI firms in the United States or um, the folks who would have hired the PIs might be uh, implicated in this. That's harder to to find. Do you have a way of getting at that?
0: That is harder to find. And I would say, you know, Citizen Lab's response to this um, at the request of a bunch of the targets was to provide a bunch of uh, material to the Department of Justice. We understand the things that we can find, right? So our reporting highlights uh, some of these cases, and we expect to publish a bunch of reports going forward with other cases. But in those cases, we can't make any statements about evidence pointing to the ultimate commissioning party. And so I think that this is one of those situations where the group itself is so Baroque and (laughs) so prolific that you need lots of collaborations to track them, but it's clearly also a case where there's a need for law enforcement to put all the pieces together.
1: So I, that that does make sense. And I want to get to Chris, but I, I have one question that uh, is uh, on the tip of my tongue. Uh, um, do you have any uh, um, phishing emails that were sent to steptoe.com? <laughs>
0: uh None yet, but um, you know, send me your Excellent. personal Gmail too, and we'll we'll check it against the uh, we'll check it against the list. One
1: well, of that's the interesting- Stuart Baker, Stuart Dodd-Baker, So that that's easy. Uh, uh, so I'm I, I. It looks as though I don't know whether to be happy that I wasn't targeted or a little insulted. Uh, apparently, nobody thinks that uh, they have to worry about me, uh, or maybe <laughs> the fact that I make it up twenty minutes before we go on the air. Uh, but, Prevents me from being a useful target.
0: I don't know, Stuart. Maybe um, just keep uh, talking about Beltrox and uh, keep naming the people, and uh, be in touch when you start getting suspicious emails. Who knows? I will
1: absolutely. I have done that before. I uh, I had some. Uh, Uh, early trips to China for big conferences where there were a lot of CEOs and we all got uh, a bunch of thumb drive and other electronic gifts. And I brought them all back and gave them to a uh, uh, cyber forensics firm. (laughs) So I am glad to do that. So clearly, law enforcement is getting involved. You got involved. Uh, How did you how did Reuters get involved in this story?
5: Yeah, so it was really probably about Five months ago, six months ago, um, my colleagues and I, my colleagues Jack Stubbs and Rafael Satter, we had been really interested in this concept of mercenary hacking firms, firms that offer hacking for hire services to target VIPs and uh, you know very specific targets in the corporate community. And, As we were looking into that, India kept coming back up, you know, the the idea that these businesses and these small firms were based in India and that they were were doing work for governments in the Middle East, for private investigators in Europe and the United States. And over time, as we kept
1: drilling. I I think I've been hearing for 10 years uh, about uh, hackers for hire in India who will uh, help you with uh, litigation, if you want to know what the other side is thinking about mm-hmm. doing. This is this has been kicking around for a while.
5: Yeah, you're very right on that. And it was actually kind of amazing. As we were reaching out to people kind of involved in this world, private investigators, sometimes they would show us uh, the email pitches that they had received from the Indians. And they were very explicit. You know, everything from a LinkedIn message saying, hey, do you want help hacking your ex-wife or do you have clients that want to hack their ex-wife to things that were perhaps a little less obvious. But this was happening in some cases, really out there in the open. Some of the operators for Beltrox and other firms had on their LinkedIn profiles that they were skilled in hacking email inboxes and providing that content to clients. So, as you said, some of this has been out there in the past. I think it just took some time for us to really drill down on which firms we should really be looking at. Um, One firm that's obviously gotten a lot of press in the past is this firm uh, Appen Security Group. And that that was, I think, where we kind of started to look at this is is people who had previously worked at Appen and where they were today.
1: And that is how uh, oh, the old the old the old uh, LinkedIn research tool, huh? Exactly, one of my favorites.
0: <laughs> well, and there is there is Appen DNA running through this entire operation, and I think one of the interesting challenges when you're tracking mercenary hacking in India is that the people who do it, some of them are freelancers, some of them have side hustles, and then day jobs doing professional hacking. And so the actual process of kind of figuring out what a group of people is doing and what they're doing with respect to a set of targets that you have is an interesting challenge.
1: Yes.
5: Exactly. So eventually, of course, we ran into John and the folks at Citizen Lab um, after just you know digging around in this long enough. And that's where we are at this point.
1: So at least one of the uh, uh, Indian hackers for hire was uh, indicted by the Justice Department a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, Mr. Gupta. Yeah. And yep. it's interesting to this
0: to this thing about stuff out in the open. So in, a couple of years ago, right, um, there was this indictment that came out in California against Mr. Gupta. Um, he's also the uh, CEO and director of Beltrox under both his aliases. What this showed us, since there were also American PIs indicted um, back in 2015, I guess it was, is that this practice is A, super common, B, it's like a giant open secret, and C, the PIs who do it seem to feel like by outsourcing this hacking, they may be also outsourcing the risk to them. And that's kind of an interesting problem. And it's my hope that talking more about this case, more investigation of this case, Will change the risk calculus a little bit for the many American operations that I think um, probably are behind some of com- commissioning some of these uh, hacks.
1: Oh yeah. So f- what what the Justice Department, which is investigating this, uh, ought, probably ought to do, is ought it ought to uh, tell Mr. Gupta that. Uh, Not only will they give him a non pros agreement if he comes to the United States, they'll pay his way and pay his expenses as long as he turns in everybody from the United States who hired him.
0: I will personally pay for a day pass to Disneyland for Mr. Gupta if he comes to the United States.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, yes. And and, and uh, uh, in exchange, obviously, for the first opportunity to interview him. But yeah, th- th- this is a, a real vulnerability if the Indian government plays along. Chris, do you have any idea whether uh, the Indian government is going to uh, do an extradition, cooperate in the investigation?
5: It's a good question. The um, US and India do have an extradition policy. How well that policy and collaboration works is a bit of an open-ended question. When we asked the Justice Department this question, if they've made an extradition order and where it is, you know, as you can guess, they declined to comment. Although they added that these things do take time, which I thought was an indication that perhaps this has been ongoing for some time. He was indicted and he remains a fugitive, as as John was saying, um, originally in 2015. So there is this interesting question for why he's not in the United States right now, why he hasn't been hauled into court for that previous case. I think... You know, now that this is public, sometimes that does have an effect on local law enforcement to take action. So we're closely monitoring it. And if he does get extradited,
1: if we do see movement in the case, uh, we're going to try and be the first to report it. Yeah, I don't I India is not a really good partner to the United States on a lot of these things. Uh, it it had 50 years of settled kind of Soviet style hostility to everything involving the United States and and so it it's full of bureaucracies that say, "Oh yeah, US, I can put that in the drawer and leave it." Um eh, eh, that's changed at the top, but less so in the bureaucracy. So my guess is There will have to be some stories about uh, where that process is uh, and what's holding it up and maybe some embarrassing stories about uh, uh, how uh – uh, you know other countries have managed to turn software into a uh, uh, a gold mine and uh, India's is uh, doing you know, ransomware and hack for hire um so it, it, it there is there's room for embarrassing the China, the uh, Indian government into uh, cooperating here uh, I think this is one you know looking at the at the office that he was working from, you know, it doesn't look like Gupta's making a lot of money on this. He could make more money working for the U.S. government, turning in uh, people, and then testifying against him. Oh, Stuart,
0: so. yeah, we should we should make sure to uh, let let Mr. Gupta um, know uh, know of your analysis about his uh, financials.
1: I think <laughs> absolutely, one... absolutely. One... <laughs> Tell it, he should send me an email.
0: <laughs> um, better yet, meet up for coffee. You know, one of yeah. the. Um, challenges with this case as well, and this is something that you know we hope to talk about more in the future, is that a lot of governments have targets here as well. So we've talked about cases in detail thus far that involves sort of two cases, maybe three, right? Uh, some clusters of American nonprofits, and then a bunch of people who sort of shorted or reported on a particular uh, German company, Wirecard AG, which coincidentally was raided about a week and a half ago. The um, thing, though, that's interesting about this case is that you get targeting of government players in multiple countries. And what's interesting about that is that the logic there is not that there's some other government behind this, but that it is uh, commercial players, players with resources trying to figure out what kind of decisions might be made in the government with respect Uh to them. And that's a really interesting, I think, interesting area for thinking more about these commercial threats.
1: Yeah, we we can... Police it uh, uh, and police it more effectively, but uh, increasingly it sounds to me as though it's already really been normalized in large parts of uh, uh, the West. It, it's it's an option. You have to be really angry and a little bit slippery uh, to. To consider it, but I can easily imagine saying, "I'd like to know the answer to this question, uh, but I don't want to take any risks. So will no one rid me of this meddlesome uh, will opponent? My, uh, will my will uh, my law firm not
0: set up a contract uh, with you yeah know, legal with the, privilege with a legitimate with the PI, PI firm? who
1: will then set up a contract with this guy with that says don't do anything illegal, uh, and then everybody's got deniability right down to Mr. Gupta, uh, and and uh, um, now when the stuff starts coming in or when he says, well, what's his wife's name? Then people kind of don't have as much deniability as they think. But you you really have to work the case. Uh, uh, and maybe that's another thing. Maybe uh, the U.S. Uh, Justice Department should set up its own um, hack for hire firm in uh, uh, India and start advertising just as aggressively and see who comes to them. So um, one interesting thing here,
0: we uh, we did some collaboration along the way with um, a company that's now called Norton LifeLock. Um, and they published a report around the same time that we did with some cool pie charts. And one of the things that they showed is that 55% of the targets that they were able to identify are located in the US. So this is remarkable for an operation that has a global focus and targets all over the world. It really suggests that there's something about America and private investigators in America and law firms in America that's really driving this thing at scale and really needs to be addressed here.
1: Yeah. So uh, uh, Chris, your story says you actually went out and talked to a bunch of ISPs uh, saying, we think that your infrastructure has been used in this scam. what did you learn from that?
5: Yeah. So we described them as... um... We were very careful about this. We described them as online service providers here just because we knew internet service provider would be um, something people would really gravitate to. And, you know... Something that we noticed through this operation that John spoke to previously was that the Indians often relied upon these different email servicing platforms like a link shortener or a service that allows you to track whether an email has been opened, the IP of that individual uh, who's opened the email. These are typically like free email services and platforms that are used by marketers and, and public relations people. But in the case of these hackers, they found a real utility in them to track their targets. When we came to this story, we were trying to identify the points where there was really valuable information, the platforms that could give us leads and vital bits of data that could ultimately get us closer to making this reveal and to pushing the story forward. And we were able to identify a series of these kind of email service platforms, if you will, that Beltrox had used extensively and we began uh, combing through our data, trying to identify them and starting conversations with them saying, hey, were you aware of this user sending these types of phishing emails? And sure enough, the Beltrox guys had three or four services that they constantly used for the last seven years, just continuously. It was like one of their consistent TTPs is they would use this service to track emails or that service to shorten their URLs or this service to try and identify the IP of the target when they open the email, right? And that ended up being a crucial part of our own investigation was being able to have conversations with these people, notify them about this malicious activity happening through their platform, and then them pointing us to other kind of cases that may be related.
0: One of the interesting things here is that um, there's there's an interesting parallel to the tracking that we've done of NSO Group, which is... NSO provides multiple customers with tech that uses a bunch of the same infrastructure. And so when one customer does a bad thing, and you know my colleague Bill Marzak at Citizen Lab spots it, we're able to then get visibility on what a bunch of customers are doing. Something really similar has happened here, which is these guys used the same shorteners and a bunch of the same infra for a bunch of their different targeting. And The lack of compartmentation just makes it possible for researchers like us to really get a view into what they're doing. And it suggests something interesting about commercial targeting more generally, which is the upset considerations are really different than state operations. And in some cases, they're the things that we really need um, to continue to track them. And it really differentiates them from state actors. And there's a you know, there's a big difference in cost there as well.
1: Well, this uh, this is another uh, instance of Baker's law of cybersecurity, which is that uh, our cybersecurity sucks, but so does theirs. Uh, and uh, we can take advantage of just how bad their OPSEC is. Um, I'm going to close with a suggestion for how you could uh, fund Citizen Lab for the next 20 years. Uh, oh, oh, no. If you can figure out, if if you can figure out the companies that are behind some of these, uh, uh, if there are companies, but it, it sounds like that's quite possible, uh, the companies that are behind these campaigns, you already know that Carson Block at Muddy Waters was um, a target for this kind of activity. Yeah, uh, So you could go to him and say, hey, you want to sell somebody short? How about these guys who've been using these tools and are going to be under investigation as soon as our report comes out next week i uh, you know and all he has to do is give you 2% of what he makes on uh, shorting those companies and you're golden
0: you know as soon as you began that unspooling that thought i was like (laughs) what terrible place is stewart gonna go and um you definitely went there so um let
1: us know john yeah (laughs) if
5: you want it brings back what he thinks
1: yeah i will defend you don't worry i uh but you'll 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 end up paying (laughs) this this whole suggestion
0: uh, (laughs) is actually an elaborate ruse for stewart to build his billable hours (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. But look, it, the o- only way you 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 really deter people is if the folks who are doing the ter- deterrence have. Um, uh, a, a financial stake in making that work. Uh, so this is just like being a plaintiff slayer, but uh, only uh, in a uh, much purer cause. So uh, I, I recommend it to you highly. Uh, 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 give me a call if you decide to pursue it. Uh, 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 Chris uh, uh, Chris Bing, John Scott Railton. Uh, <laughs> uh, it was terrific to talk to you. Uh, and uh, uh, I look forward to having you back the next time you uh, you bust one of these guys. Uh, I want to thank David Chris, Nate Jones, and Nick Weaver for joining me for the News Roundup. This has been episode 320 of the Cyberlaw Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Please send us guest suggestions at cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Occasionally, I, I've started to... Uh, post uh, some of these stories uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn and ask people to vote over the weekend on which one we ought to cover. Uh, So uh, watch for that. Uh, I'm at Stuart Baker, uh, I think both places. Uh, uh, If you like the show, rate us because that's uh, our uh, only currency and join us uh, next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy and government.